So natural system, as we were discussing, is recycling itself, eating itself as it matures. But it wasn't that way in the beginning. In the beginning, no organism was using oxygen. Same for plants, plant sperm, ligni, and those fossil sperms you dig up when they were first invented 420 million years ago. No one can decompose them until after 130 million years later, like around 295 million years, there was fungus that finally figured out an enzyme that can decompose lignin. But by then, there was already a lot parting up. I mean, some of them become cool <laughs> that we are using, right? I mean, it took them a long time to figure out. But before that, it's basically linear. Natural system was a linear economy. So you take up calcium, you take up nitrogen, you build up your body, then you die. Then you become waste. You're lying on the ground. No one can decompose you. <laughs> For many, many years, it was a linear economy like us. We're dumping our waste. More than one third of our global waste is open dump. Way more than one third are open dump. That's what forests were doing 300 million years ago. But over time, ecosystem evolved to be circular and more and more circular, actually, with amazing efficiency. Especially for certain elements, they can be like 99% self-sustainable, right? So in a way, nature, over time, figured out the ultimate question of sustainability. Studying those nature problems led me to ask, how about cities? How are we doing? I mean, I grew up on a farm where everything is recycled. I mean, nothing goes to waste. We have chicken, we have pigs, we grow crops. So I can't stop asking, like, how are we doing in terms of cities? Are cities linear or circular economy? The message is cities are very much linear. We have a long way to go to become a circular economy, which we should go to and which we will go to, but we should go there first. As fictional Santa Fe Institute chaos mathematician Ian Malcolm famously put it, life finds a way. And this is perhaps nowhere better demonstrated than by roots, seeking out every opportunity, improving in their ability to access and harness nutrients as they've evolved over the last 400 million years. Roots also exemplify another maxim for living systems. What doesn't kill you makes you stronger. As the Earth's climate has transformed, plants and fungi have transformed along with it reaching into harsh and unstable environments and proving themselves in a crucible of evolutionary innovation that has reshaped the biosphere. Dig deep enough and you'll find that life, like roots, trends towards the ever finer, more adaptable, more intertwined. We all live in and on Charles Darwin's tangled bank, whether we recognize it in our farms, our markets, or our minds. Welcome to Complexity the official podcast of the Santa Fe Institute. I'm your host, Michael Garfield, and every other week we'll bring you with us for far-ranging conversations with our worldwide network of rigorous researchers developing new frameworks to explain the deepest mysteries of the universe. This week on Complexity, we talked to SFI postdoctoral fellow Ming-Jen Liu about the lessons of the invisible webwork beneath our feet, the hidden world upon which all of us walk and rely largely unnoticed, and until recently, scarcely understood. We discussed the intersection of geography, ecology, and economics, the relationship between the so-called wood wide web and urban systems, how plants domesticated mycorrhizal fungi much as humans domesticated animals and plants, the evolutionary trends revealed by a paleoecological study of roots, and what they suggest for the future of technology and civilization. This episode is an especially intertwingled and far-reaching one, as suits the topic. Plant yourself and soak it up. If you value our research and communication efforts, please subscribe to Complexity Podcast wherever you prefer to listen. Rate and review us at Apple Podcasts and or consider making a donation at santafe.edu slash give. You'll find plenty of other ways to engage with us at santafe.edu slash engage. Thank you for listening. Ming Jin Lu, it's a pleasure to have you on Complexity. Thank you for having me. 
I would like to talk with you first about your past, your mm-hmm. biography, how you got into doing science, what inspires your intellectual curiosity, and how you ended up at SFI. So just you want to riff on that for a little bit before we get into your work, that would be great. Okay. So it seems like a question with three steps. So originally, it comes from my childhood experience. Then I'll talk a little bit about my college, then how I ended up at SFI. So I grew up at a foothill of a mountain range in between mountain forest and farmlands. So that's where my family was at. So I grew up doing farming practice very early on. So I interacted with plants, soil, clouds, and also forest. I go into the forest, hunt for mushrooms and sometimes rabbits. So from very early on, I'm immersed in this natural environment. I, I get curious about all sorts of questions. Why this type of cloud will lead you to rain tomorrow? Like all those sorts of things. So I was always curious about nature. And that's why I decided to study ecology when I was in college. But I didn't only major in ecology when I went to college. So my college was Peking University, which in China is kind of an anomaly. It's very liberal arts in a sense. So they encourage us to take all sorts of different topics. So I actually took geography as my major and economics as a double major. And the reason is that I, I was always drawn to big scale patterns like patterns that happen at geographical scale. At the top of the mountain, you see all those student patterns. So that's why I was into geography. The idea of using a very simple theoretical framework to understand ecology is very fascinating to me. I mean, ecology as the economy of nature. That's why I decided, after I was exposed to ecology, that's why I decided to take economics as a double major, just to get to know more about the fundamentals of economics, the modeling framework of economics. So I had all those different sorts of discipline of knowledge. Then I did a PhD at Princeton University focusing on ecosystem ecology, but I never forgot about my roots, where I come from. Like, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> the intellectual roots where I was interested in all sorts of different systems, right? Uh, the geographical system at large scale and the biological system at small scale and also human system. So coming to SFI is... It's kind of like a natural choice for me. After an in-depth study of ecosystem ecology, after I was equipped with the techniques of ecosystem ecology, now I want to extend my research into other different types of systems. That's why I'm looking at urban systems, looking at my side projects on psychology, the brain systems. Casting long, narrow routes out into all the adjacent <laughs> I feel like this conversation is going to be full of puns, so I apologize in advance to the listeners. But you basically just knocked off the entire bingo card of stuff I wanted to bring up with you today about how all of these different domains relate to one another and how your work provides a kind of lens through which insights into all of these different areas can be uh, gained. So I think the place to start would be in this paper that you authored in Nature, Evolutionary History Resolves global organization of root functional traits. Because just as we were talking about before we started, you're right that with my background in paleontology, I love the time axis. And this is something that we talked about with Olivia Judson way back and I think in, I was like episode eight, about how we take for granted that the systems that we see on the earth are just sort of always that way. You know, even after the advent of evolutionary theory, It's still been very difficult for people, I think, in general to disabuse ourselves of this bias, this presentist bias, that once upon a time, the earth would have been for us now a very inhospitable place. And so I've been reading the senior editor of Nature, Henry G., a very brief history of life on earth. And he's been talking about this thing, which is the evolution of root systems and of the successive stages of plant innovation and new forms of plants. And I'd like to start with you. Now that you've given us a personal biography, I'd love to actually like literalize that root metaphor and talk about the evolution of roots themselves and how that has changed over time and what you and your colleagues were working on in this paper. Okay. So there's two questions. One is the history of roots. Another one is the history of our collaboration. Yeah. So the history of roots, I mean, it's easy to talk to you as a paleontologist. I mean, we can use the time axis now. So imagine roots as a tool for plants to acquire water and nutrients, just like us eating. 
right, to sustain our metabolism, to grow. The different facets of these roots, I mean, it looks like one thing actually had different facets. One facet is root itself, the structure, the geometry, the size, the surface, I mean, everything itself. And the other part is symbionts, its helper. So roots actually form a type of mutualism or helping relationship with fungi. Fungi as mushroom, you say, is their fruit body. So that's the, another part. So root themselves and their helper. So over evolutionary time, both have changed. So I'll talk about root itself first, which is related to the paper itself. So root first emerged around 400 million years ago. I mean, that's based on the fossil record from Peking University, maybe even earlier, but roughly around that time when fish was dominating. And after that, for the last few hundred million years, in this paper, we present a decreasing trend of root diameter, the most terminal absorptive roots that are in charge of pumping up nutrients and pumping up water. And they're decreasing in size, getting thinner and thinner. So this is one trend. Another trend is the helper. So they were from the first day, I mean, I shouldn't say from the first day, because I don't know, but very close to their first emergence of roots, they were already associated with mycorrhizal fungi. Mycorrhizal fungi means those fungi are almost domesticated by plants. Well, they were there first, right? Like they came to land first. Fungi was first. Yeah. Fungi was way earlier than plants. They were already like 10 meter tall organism. But this is a different type of fungi. Those are the descendants of those land fungi, but they are domesticated by plants, if I can use that word. They lost their independence. They're actually dependent on plants to feed them carbon. So the one you were mentioning, the even older land fungi, they rely on algae to feed them carbon, sugar, right? Those fungi that are associated with roots, they're mandatorily, they're obligate, dependent on plants to feed them carbon from photosynthesis. So those fungi also go through evolutionary trend. First of all, they were very simple, simplistic. You can think of the earliest association as thinner roots, basically. Because they're thinner, they can get into cracks and get the nutrients stored in those soil pools. But around the time dinosaur first emerged, that's about 250 million years ago, right? So around that time, another type of fungi, mycorrhizal fungi evolved. Those are the descendants of those fungi that can decompose wood, that can give you mushroom, delicious mushroom. They are domesticated by plants to use them to decompose soil organic matter and acquire nutrients directly instead of waiting for bacteria, for other insects to decompose the nutrients. Now plants have the initiative to just get it from the symbiotic helper, right? So this is about 200 million years ago. Then around the time dinosaur went extinct, Earth went through a very dramatic climatic change period. Right around that time, the most powerful symbiosis happened. So plants figured out how to cooperate with certain type of bacteria that can break nitrogen into nitrogen gas from the atmosphere, the most abundant gas on Earth, right? which means they have unlimited supply of nitrogen, which is the most demanded nutrients. Most abundant elements other than carbon, hydrogen, and oxygen. So that's the evolution of the helper side. So both are evolving. The roots are getting thinner and the helper are getting more powerful in terms of helping them. So this is a brief evolution of roots in terms of how I get into this research, how this research is studied. So as I told you, I was in Peking University as a student. I was studying geography, studying biology, studying ecology. So my thesis advisor happens to be one of the few, the pioneer biologists who recognize the branching structure of rooting system. Before him and another researcher, Professor Kurt Praxer, before the two, the branching structure of roots are ignored, are much ignored. So they were considered as just one thing. And they use a sieve. When they dig them up, they use a sieve to just give them an arbitrary cutoff of two millimeter. Anything thinner than that are called roots, fine roots. But starting from Dali Guo, Professor Dali Guo, there was a recognition of the branching structure, the architecture, the actually inherent difference based on the order of the roots. By order, I mean, if you think of a river system, you have small stream as first order. When two small stream meet up, they form second order. When two second order river meet up into a bigger one, they form third order, so on and so forth, until they reach the ocean. So actually, what we should really focus on is the first order, the terminal units, using the language of the Geoffrey West's scale book. 
I mean, it is a universal phenomenon. In plants, it is first order roots, but in your computer, your iPhone is the transistor, the smallest unit of CPU, or in a building, it could be the faucet that funnels water and waste throughout the building. So we decided to look at these terminal units across different taxa, across different continents, across different countries. And we found this astonishing results that wasn't possible before because they were not looking at the right thing. So in this paper, you talk about how it was assumed up to this point that the structure, the morphology of root systems was constrained by and like adaptive to the same kind of economics that are governing leaves, right? So could you talk a little bit about that and how your results challenged that assumption and why there are kind of two different forces at play, two different pressures at work between what's shaping leaves and what's shaping roots? Okay. Yeah, that's a fascinating question. So what is driving the evolution of leaf? I mean, obviously they have two dramatically different driving forces. One is driven by light competition. I mean, if your purpose, why your design is to absorb light to the best of your ability and you need to compete. So it's a light game and it's an area game. But when you are in the soil, it's a 3D space. So light shed on to plant, it's actually 2D. I mean, it is 3D, but a leaf except light is actually 2D. It's a surface, a leaf surface. But roots are 3D. You're in the soil matrix, not that matrix, <laughs> the soil matrix. We, we call it soil matrix, actually. It's 3D and water and nutrients come to you from all direction instead of from above, right? Light only come from one direction, but nutrients and water are from all direction. And for that, the driving force is for you to be as permeable as possible, as efficient as possible to let in material. And that has caused the evolution of thinner and thinner roots, because if you get thinner, you using one gram, I mean, that's the example we used in the most recent paper, using one gram of carbon, which you get from photosynthesis, you can produce thousand meters of roots, and they can explore soil, and they can give you water and nutrients. So that's the, at the magnetic level, why they're different. In terms of the different pattern we found, so leaf, because it's driven by light competition, people have been long talking about this slow, fast spectrum. They call it leaf economic spectrum. Maybe they use the word economy again because it's an investment. So either a thick leaf that can live long or thin leaf that live shorter lifespan. And those thinner leaves tends to have higher nutrient concentration. And those thick leaves tends to be very poor or less palatable from animal's perspective. Yucky, in a way. Right, so succulents. Yeah, 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 yeah. Not less palatable. So I just mentioned the age, uh, the longevity of leaf as an axis. Another axis is nitrogen as an axis. Mm. So what we found in the roots is we only found one axis of change, which is diameter. You just get thinner and thinner, thinner. Everything else is corresponding to this change of size. So we didn't find two axes of change. So again, to bring the time dimension back into this, you know, one of the findings that is really curious about this paper, but it makes sense once you kind of put it into that kind of natural history context, is that you're seeing something different in the tropics than you are at the higher latitudes. And again, I was just reading uh, G's book about how the reemergence of polar ice caps and the sort of stratification of climatic zones across latitudes that was less obvious during the age of reptiles. You know, where like everything was basically kind of tropical until I guess the end of the Eocene and then you get Antarctica and the northern polar ice cap and so on. It seems like as there is an increasing diversity of climate zones on Earth, you're also seeing this change. I don't know if they're causally related, but one of the things that you talk about in this paper is how you see more kinds of roots in the tropics because the tropics have basically preserved more ancestral plant forms than are apparent at the higher latitudes. And I'd love to hear you talk about that and how the strategies of these plants differ up in like the northern boreal forests, for instance, versus like the Amazon, it was like why that is. Mm -hmm. We think about tropics as a source that has been preserved since the dinosaurs went extinct, right? I mean, the modern tropical forest emerged right after dinosaur went extinct. And since then, the tropics has been warm and landmass hasn't moved much. Right. Before that, landmass was moving around from Pangaea to the current world. But for the last 60 million years, it has been pretty stable. So the tropics has been tropics, but the boreal has been killed periodically by the glacier. 
I mean, the most recent one is the last glacial maximum, which wiped out all plants up until North New Jersey. <laughs> That's why I did my PhD study. You can still find those borders that are carried by the glacier. So think about when the glacier retreat, you need to repopulate the area with species, right? Because of that, you have a filtering process. Subset of the tropics species will move out, but most of them won't adapt, won't be able to tolerate those colder climate, those more nutrient-poor soil, all sorts of things, right? I mean, also other extreme biomes that are younger, right? The desert, the Mediterranean, right? I mean, from a plant's perspective, they are harsher compared with the tropics, which has ample water, ample light, ample everything, right? Warm temperature. So in that way, it's a filtering of the fittest. And because of that, you will necessarily have less species diversity and less functional diversity. Right? Because only a few functional traits can flourish in that new, harsher environment. And this is one of our findings that um, those harsher, newer environment tends to have much thinner roots. And they tends to have smaller variation of roots, which means thin roots is one of the favorite strategy to thrive there. Right? And one of the extreme is in our most recent paper, the thinnest of all, which is quite absurd, absurdly thin, three times thinner than my hair. Okay, so I want to dig it into this just a little bit more because as you say in this paper, thin roots benefit plants in less predictable environments where rapid root growth response to a fluctuating resource supply is rewarded. So this is where I get to savor making these analogical leaps to other areas. Basically, like there's a broader pattern that people like Mark Pagel have noted in his recent essay on evolvability, which is like the ability of a lineage of organisms to evolve rapidly. And he finds an upward trend in that evolvability over tens of millions of years in the mammal lineages that they studied, where even though evolution is still obeying the sort of Darwinian incremental process, animals are making larger jumps in body size towards the end of their data set. And this is related to this conversation I had with David Krakauer on the show back in 2020, episode 29, which I love bringing up all the time because he's talking about what kind of organisms make it through these extremely disruptive phases of Earth history, like the end Cretaceous extinction that you brought up a moment ago, where it seems like all of the survivors of that extinction are generalists that are highly adaptable. And they tend to be small-bodied organisms that are less sort of dependent on these mature, highly specialized ecosystems. And then to stack one more thing on this house of cards, there's the way that it seems over the years, over your lifetime and mine, education has shifted from indoctrinating people in the great classics to teaching people how to navigate a rapidly changing knowledge system to you know teaching people how to remain lifetime learners, how to keep searching. And this is akin to the research that SFI Childhood Development researcher Alison Gopnik has done on the explore-exploit tension and how they're saying like kids tend to be geared towards more and more exploration. And as you get older, you start paying more and more attention to exploiting what you already know. And, you know, just one more thing, which is, you know, you brought up Jeffrey West a moment ago and his work on allometric scaling and organisms. He talks about this exact same thing about there being a trade-off and you know his work with Chris Kempis also you know they talk about a trade-off between growth and then maintenance as an organism gets older so it seems like over time at least in living memory as the increasing complexity of human society has led to a more and more unstable environment it's favoring people that are sort of like shallower more nimble faster growing root systems intellectually Exactly. And that, you know, it's it's favoring generalists. It's favoring people that, to bring up the conversation we had with Andrea Wolf, and she was talking about how like Alexander von Humboldt lived in a time when people had very, very deep sort of narrow specialties. You could think of like a tuber yeah. growing down. And then now you've got these people that look much more like the root systems that you were just recently studying in South Africa, where you cast out a lot of nets. Our social networks now, you know, 5,000 Facebook friends, like they're much shallower and more tenuous, more precarious in some respect, but it's part of this bias towards a greater evolvability. And so I'm just curious how much water you're willing to let that hold as an analogy. It's like how do you, how you feel like that's supported by your work or not? There's a lot of analogy. Yes. <laughs> I'm impressed. 
So you mentioned quite a few things. I can't remember all of them, but you did mention exploration was exploitation. And I want to hold on that and expand it a little bit. So think about those fine routes as very cheap, but very large net. And they're more explorative. And uh, if one direction doesn't work out, they can choose the other direction. But those thicker routes tend to do better at in stable environment where they know what they are facing next year. So it's more like exploiting the location they are growing. So that that exploration, exploitation phenomenon is also very general in other areas of ecology. For example, the contrast between mice and elephants. So we call mice as our strategist. They are very small, they reproduce very fast. And when you knock them out, they're very resilient. It's very quick to come back. But elephants takes like 40 years to mature and then live for 60, 70 years, right? But once you knock them out, they grow back very slowly. So they are called case strategists. So this is a very common phenomenon in ecology. And I think they all share the roots of economics, right? The economy of nature, that the spectrum of strategy to adapt, to live, to thrive. And these two spectrum at both ends, one is more adaptive and one is less adaptive, but takes advantage of what is already here. And I think, as you said, as we are moving into an era with rapid global change at all fronts, I think uh, those are strategists, both intellectually or literally, right? <laughs> we will benefit. Like, think about the mice <laughs> in New York City. Yeah. They're doing pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> uh, they would be the last, I mean, we might be the last standing animal if the city gets submerged. So, you know, to that point, you make this comment in the paper that the trend towards thinner roots has had major consequences for the symbiosis between plant roots and mycorrhizal fungi, that we found that mycorrhizal colonization, that is the percentage of root length colonized, declines as the roots get thinner, and that herbaceous roots have approximately 30% less colonization than woody plants at the same root diameter. You know, call me crazy, but that reminds me of Philip K. Dick's novel, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, in which he's projecting this sort of post-apocalyptic society in which we basically extinguished all other non-human megafauna on the planet, which, you know, you think about the history of human civilization has been one of us eradicating all of our other hominid competition and hunting various large, you know, like the moa to extinction, these big animals. And now we have livestock, you know, and we have domesticated animals, but the biodiversity of those organisms is much, much lower than it used to be. And we're continually, you know, as we construct a more and more complete human niche with our technologies, the animals that we have domesticated in the way that plants domesticated fungi are fewer and fewer. And it seems like the same kind of trend is happening in that symbiosis. And oh, I'm, wow. I'm curious, you know, to, I didn't to see hear that. you speak on that. Yeah, I didn't see that. Oh, wow. So we did present a trend. You know, common language is, if I can do it myself, why should I pay money for you to do it? <laughs> uh, so that's the calculation for plants, especially moving into new, harsher environment. It's getting increasingly more expensive to pay others to do their work. Like, it becomes increasingly beneficial for them to figure out their own. It's like Apple now is no longer buying Intel chips. I mean, Apple Silicon. Why do I pay the premium for a less powerful product? which Intel is providing instead of using our own M1 chips, which is far more, <laughs> far more efficient, far more powerful and cheaper. I mean, <laughs> I mean, Apple is gaining so much more money by doing it themselves, right? And that's a trend. But I, <laughs> I didn't say where you're going. The human, our history of domesticating animals and plants, we are actually selecting fewer and fewer and focusing more on efficiency. That's true. Yes, but I don't know if plants are doing that intentionally. Well, I mean, probably not intentionally, right? So what does this mean in terms of soil composition and nutrient processing? Because one of the things that happened after the extinction of dinosaurs was that grasslands took over a huge percentage of the terrestrial Earth's surface. And over the span of human history, there's been a tremendous amount of deforestation and so more and more of the Earth. This is starting to edge into the other work that you mentioned a moment ago in your more recent papers. But you know, one of the things that define grasses is that they have this Unlike, I guess, most other plants, which have like a quote unquote C3 metabolism. So they have, C4. Yeah, they have a C4, which is better at high temperature, drier climate. Yeah, high temperature. It's sort of more effective 
at harvesting scarce carbon dioxide, right? So like there's been a change in the atmospheric composition that has accompanied all of this stuff as well. And so, yeah, I'm just curious what your work has to say about the way that soils themselves have changed over the last 65 million years or so, the way that the atmosphere itself has changed and the way that that's created a different kind of environment for animals and the other organisms. And I guess that gets us into the, uh, you know, what you found in these other papers, the one that you published in Nature, Ecology, and Evolution on global plant symbiont organization and the emergence of biogeochemical cycles resolved by evolution-based trait modeling. And then lastly, this piece, Biome Boundary Maintained by Intense Below-Ground Resource Competition in the World's Thinnest Rooted Plant Community. And maybe we're biting off too much all at once there, but maybe the right place to poke in here would be to talk about that nature, ecology, and evolution piece and how you found these four different root strategies that you alluded to earlier and how they're related to one another and how they're setting up these competitions that lead to phase cycles like flickering in different biomes and how that changes the composition that's a tapestry of biomes across the surface of the earth. And yeah. Okay. I mean, it's a broad question and nice <laughs> yeah. one. Whoops, uh, sorry. Um, I want to focus on one word you mentioned, flickering. That seems to be, I mean, that is central to one of our findings. So I want to focus on the word feedback. So we have been talking about this tiny little roots and the evolutionary history. But one thing we should realize is, yes, this is a tiny little thing that have been pumping water and nutrients through Earth history, right, over the whole Earth. But this tiny little thing actually can generate macroscope pattern you can actually see with your eyes. Instead of the hair thing, thing you can't observe, you can take an airplane and you can see those large-scale patterns. And the way it is functioning is through feedback. And the Nature Ecology paper is focusing on those root helper, those mycorrhizal fungi bacteria that are helping roots. So how they power the feedback of ecosystems and vegetation and generate this alternative stable states that flicker when you are at a certain zone and then they collapse into one state or the other, depends on which way you move. But the PAS paper is focusing on the geometry of root itself and how the geometry itself generates this type of alternative stable states. On the one end, you have this low stature of fembus vegetation. On the other side, one meter away, you have a totally different ecosystem that has much more biomass, but much less diversity. So both papers share this common thread of feedback and local scale, tiny thing, generating this macroscope pattern of bistable states. That's interesting. I mean, it reminds me of, they talk about sort of nutrient availability in coral reefs versus in other parts of the ocean and how the reefs sort of are harvesting and trapping much more of the nutrients. And so the waters in those areas are actually kind of nutrient poor. This gets into some of the findings in this paper where you're talking about succession and how at different phases of ecological succession, the system is limited by different nutrients. And I'd love to hear you talk about that because I feel like that really gets into, as you mentioned in the Nature Ecol and Evolution piece, why it is that experimentally they found that you know, if you're a farmer, you know this, that like certain, mm -hmm. certain systems are limited by nitrogen and others are limited by phosphorus. And so what are we seeing here? Like what's yeah. going on? I mean, I was a farmer before I went to college. <laughs> I still farm when I go back. So here's the thing. We talk about glacier, right? Glaciation. Glacier destroys everything. But when they go away, they leave abundant nutrients in the soil. All those primary rock material that has been frozen in, in the ice when they melt, they're very fertile. And those fertile soil are rich in phosphorus, but poor in nitrogen. That's just simple geology. And that provides the primary feeding ground for plants. And there you have succession. You have the first tree growing, feeding on those rich phosphorus. But as you grow, you move those phosphorus in your body and you have less and less in the soil. You start to get more and more phosphorus limited, right? But nitrogen is totally different. In the beginning, there's almost no nitrogen in the soil. But as you grow and grow, nitrogen are introduced from the atmosphere by those bacteria, by those nitrogen-fixing plants, and those are accumulated in those dirts, in those black soil organic matter, and they accumulate over time. So over time, you have two contrasting trends. Your phosphorus is fixed in your body more and more. 
But in the system, you're accumulating more and more nitrogen that are originally from atmosphere that wasn't there. And because of this contrasting trend, younger forests are often limited by nitrogen because they were not there, not in the soil. And older forests are often limited by phosphorus because the rock are leached, are weathered. I mean, the older the soil, like the tropics, are most phosphorus limited. So that's why you see this trend. And that's also why you tend to see nitrogen-fixing plants in the early stage because there's not much nitrogen there. And it is those nitrogen-fixing plants, like the red elder in Oregon, mm. right? they're very famous. They fix tons, tons of nitrogen. And those nitrogen don't get lost easily. They just stay in the litter cycle. In the leaf, when the leaf die, they get into the soil, then they get recycled, recycled, recycled. They keep piling up. Hmm. So, you know, this raises questions for me, and I'm curious how far you're willing to explore in this direction about lessons from this for human economic systems. When, you know, talking with Jeffrey West on the show, and he talks about just how absurd it is that economists assume that capitalism can grow on checked forever. But then it's like, well, well, at the same time, you know, you have systems like the Amazon that are constantly growing, but they're growing into their own decay. Like you're talking about, you know, like a mature forest has found ways to recycle a lot of its own nutrients. And so, you know, it's funny because if you look at stuff like Naomi Klein's shock doctrine, capitalism, where she's talking about, well, we have no more frontier anymore. So capitalism is just eating itself. And that's terrifying on one level. But then if you recast it in terms more like uh, Kate Rayworth's donut economics, then what you're actually talking about is the possibility that we're sort of transitioning into a mature form of the economy that is much better at recycling its own waste products. Oh, wow. And, you know, and so like, <laughs> I mean, and clearly we shouldn't, you know, like <laughs> that's not what we're really talking about when we're talking about like upsetting democracies with the CIA you know, or, or um, capitalism loving a disaster so it can go in and rebuild exactly. But there is some kind of similarity in the way that ecosystems reinvade their own disrupted zones. And I mean, I know that, you know, you and I have talked about the way that the glycolytic metabolism that animals use that depends on oxygen evolved in kind of a response to this crisis created by cyanobacteria and climate cycles and the great oxidation event that killed a ton of stuff by flooding the atmosphere with oxygen. And so modern industrial pollution has this kind of clear analogy yep, analogous. to this prehistoric form of atmospheric pollution. And there's a lesson in there. I'd love to hear you kind of play with a little bit. Wow. You just led the conversation to my current research that I'm working on with colleagues here at SFI and uh, colleagues at Stanford. I don't want to go too deep there, but I want to tell the analogy, tell yeah, why please. I'm working on urban system now. So natural system, as we were discussing, is recycling itself, eating itself as it mature. But it wasn't that way in the beginning, right? For anything, I mean, we just talked about oxygen in the beginning. No organism was using oxygen. Same for plants, plant stem, ligni, and those fossil stems you dig up when they were first invented 420 million years ago. No one can decompose them until after 130 million years later, like around 295 million years, there was fungus that finally figured out an <laughs> enzyme that can decompose lignin. Like all the plastic we're worried about, right? Yeah, like but by then there was already a lot parting up. I mean, some of them become coal <laughs> that we are using, right? I mean, it took them a long time to figure out. But before that, it's basically linear. Natural system was a linear economy. So you take up calcium, you take up nitrogen, you build up your body, then you die. Then you become waste. You're lying on the ground. No one can decompose you. <laughs> For many, many years, it was a linear economy like us. We're dumping our waste. More than one third of our global waste is open dump. Way more than one third are open dump. That's what forests were doing <laughs> 300 million years ago. But over time, ecosystem evolved to be circular and more and more circular, actually, with amazing efficiency, especially for certain elements. They can be like 99% self-sustainable, right? So in a way, nature over time figured out the ultimate question of sustainability. I mean, studying those nature problems led me to ask, how about cities? How are we doing? I mean, I grew up on a farm where everything is recycled. I mean, nothing goes to waste. 
we have chicken, we have pigs, we grow crops. So I can't stop asking like how are we doing in terms of cities? Are cities linear or circular economy? So I don't want to get into too much detail, but the message is cities are very much linear. We have a long way to go to become a circular economy, which we should go to and which we will go to, but we should go there fast. So that kind of begs the question that I asked Jeffrey West. He wasn't very optimistic about this when he talks about how the scaling involved in cities and in the interaction networks in cities leads to what he called the finite time singularity, where the innovation crisis cycle is constantly ratcheting up to a faster and faster tempo. And eventually there's an inevitable collapse. It's a calculus, right? It's the question, can we learn to recycle faster than we're learning to generate new waste products? We can't. You don't think so? We can't. Yeah. I'll use an analogy. The burst of oxygen was about 3.5 billion years ago, right? Then the multicellularity organism that really thrived on using oxygen was much, much later. That's billion year time scale lag. Then we had lignin accumulating for hundred million years, right? Until the mushroom finally figured out how to decompose them. Then we come to our modern day. We have plastic, right? For like a 50 to 100 year time scale, we're still trying to figure out. So you see this trend, you always create waste first, then it's only at one threshold when you realize, hey, there's too much waste. It's either too much hazard or too much energy stored that I have to figure out how to use it. So there will always be a lag. You can't reverse it. You can't figure out the way to utilize your waste before you have the waste. So I guess maybe the more kind of precise way of asking that question would be, how can we think more rigorously about how much collapse is necessary in order for that recycling innovation to happen? You know, if we're talking about people like John Michael Greer, who say, look, it's not a binary. It's not like we're going to have a techno utopia or it's a total collapse of civilization. He calls it like a slump. You know, and I guess the question would be then, what lessons can we draw from the fossil record or how can we think about this mathematically in such a way that we know not only where the limit to growth is, but sort of where the floor is if we're talking about like a market crash where it's like, at what point do we hit the price channel where Bitcoin stops sinking at around 30,000 bucks and then it's like wobbling in that channel until it finds a way to start growing again? I mean, I don't know what your thoughts are on that, but I'd be really curious to know kind of where you, given the fact that you're thinking about all this stuff all the time, see how far are we going to fall before we catch ourselves and we learn to metabolize all the waste products that we've been creating? Oh, that's your question. Yeah. I might misunderstood your last question and I mischaracterized my response. I said no. So let me clarify my response. So the way we figure out the rate of us figuring out how to recycle our waste, we always lag behind the rate we create waste. I mean, that's just by default, right? <laughs> you first create a problem, then you solve a problem. Sure. But the time scale is matched. So going back to the question of lignin, it takes 100 million years to figure out the lignin decomposition using genetic evolution, right? The random mutation of a single location on the genome, right? Finally made a product that can decompose lignin using enzyme, which is a protein. But plastic? I don't think it will take a hundred million years, right? It will take the time scale of a hundred years or multi-decades, right? We already have technique that can bind two enzymes from nature to produce a super enzyme that can decompose plastic super fast. That's from a UK research group. So we already seen that. So the optimistic message is that, yes, we are producing waste faster and faster, but we are also solving the problem faster and faster, mm. even though there's a lag. And then you got people like Paul Stamets, who's out there advocating for the fungi that are eating radiation. He's like trying to go out there and do micro remediation on Fukushima and this kind of thing. So it's like, it seems like the fungi are coming to our rescue. Here. Mm -hmm. So tying back to what you just mentioned, Geoffrey West's point of we have to innovate faster and faster. I think, yes, of course we have to, because we're creating problems faster and faster. But I want to say that we can innovate faster and faster. Think about the rate of genetic innovation, right? The, you're relying on natural process with precursor of fungi to feed on dead wood. And over many years, they finally figure out a product. You compare that with our human innovation on paper, on computer, on digital platform. We are way faster. We're way faster. So I want to make sure that we give time to just going a little bit more into this latest paper yeah, that you please. put out on the Finbo and the Afro-Temperate 
for us because yeah, this is a really units. cool piece. <laughs> this requires us doubling back, I don't know, what, 20 minutes in this conversation to the last one and talking about how these different ecological regimes compete with one another. And I mean, this is such an interesting work because it's such a bizarre scenario. And again, you and your colleagues have challenged a pretty longstanding assumption here in ecology that it is the sort of external factors of a system that determine what's actually growing there. And you're saying something more akin to what you just said, which is no, actually, it's the way that organisms construct their niches and then lock each other out and maintain stable regimes that prevent invasion from competitors, even in a system where the climate between the finbos and the forest is very similar, except in the way that these different plant cohorts have sort of defined it for themselves. Yeah, I would just love to hear you expound on this particular piece of research a little bit before we wrap this up. Yeah, so that links back to our conversation on feedback and nonlinearity. So you think about a soil gradient from rich to poor as a continuous change. The traditional thinking may give you a linear projection, right? If your nutrients is zero, you get a vegetation that corresponds to a zero. 0 0.5 corresponds to 0 0.5, one corresponds to one. But once you consider into plants, engineering their own environment using feedback, right? You shed your leaf to make your soil richer, or you burn yourself to make your soil poorer. All of a sudden, you are looking at a soil gradient that is still 0 to 1, continuous change, but the vegetation on top is 0 to 1. You don't find 0 0.5. It's either 0 or 1. Why? You can't survive in the middle. <laughs> you can't survive in the middle. It's almost like the weakest work on the political realm. You can't survive as a moderate. You have to appeal the extreme. Yeah, we talked about that with Vicky Yang, where she was talking about <laughs> yeah. why, you know, both sides of the spectrum. Same. Uh, you know, other, the people Same. in the middle. Yeah. Same. You have to thrive at one condition, right? So as a famous plant, you have to devise a suit of strategy, a combination of them that let you thrive in this very environment, which is the one I said. And as forest, you have a set of strategy allow you to thrive at zero condition. So the soil condition at the middle point is 0 0.5, but you can't be that plant that is right in the middle. You'll be outcompeted by either fimbus or plant. You can't outcompete any. That is like a reinforcing process that pulls them away further and further over time. The fimbus will burn them, periodically make them poorer and poorer and settle there at a poor nutrient state. And the forest will accumulate nutrients. I mean, we're talking about the accumulation of nitrogen in the system. Yeah. They'll get richer and richer over time. I mean, that's why at now we're looking at this sharp transition, like less than one meter transition, like a binary transition when you are flying over the landscape. But historically, they won't be this sharp, right? This takes time to emerge over evolutionary time. So, I mean, again, maybe the last question for you would then be, so this is a, a sort of stable order in which you have these two sort of self-reinforcing domains. Mm -hmm. But then, of course, you get these extinction events and so on, where again, you know, it seems like, again, for episode 29, like these generalists don't do so well in a mature ecosystem that favors highly tuned specialization. But then you have a Chicxulub crater all of a sudden, and 70% of life on Earth is wiped out. And then... Suddenly, these evolvable, nimble strategies pick back up. And so I'm curious, under what circumstances you do see something like the 0.5? Like, where are we seeing more generalist strategies in soil ecology? Well, I won't say the 0.5 is generalist. Okay. Right? They're not fit for either environment. So the, and those plants, I won't characterize them as specialist or generalist. They, as a group because they are locked up together, because the externalities, they shape up the environment together. They are in this game of shaping up the soil environment. Yeah, I don't see that much link with the generalist versus specialist conversation. Maybe it's, and I could be just totally off base here, but it's sort of like asking, under what conditions do political moderates oh. start? Like, because I guess oh, what, I'm really, what I'm really asking you is oh, a question about, you know, there's so much other work at SFI going on about political polarization and why we've seen increasing polarization over the last several decades. And the, the question would be sort of like, is there a lesson from your work on ecology that suggests the 
conditions under which the polarization might sort of decrease again, you know, in which the competition between the Finbos and the forest is less intense. Oh, I see, I see, I see. Now I get your question. So in nature, there are quite a few different type of feedback mechanisms that generate macroscope pattern. So we happen to be looking at a self-reinforcing type of two pulling away from each other. There are other types of feedback that generate smooth coexistence, but not here, not in the South African Western Cape system. For example, let's talk about the tundra, where you have shrub and grass coexist in the same spot. And uh, as you traverse from zero to one in the soil gradient, your vegetation smoothly change most of the time. In certain scenario, we also expect sudden transition in certain parameter domain, that's our theoretical prediction. But most of the time, based on most of the observation, you see smooth coexistence. But those are governed by different type of feedback than these that are two pulling away from each other. Right? So maybe what you're getting at is that there is kind of a silver lining in undermining the world as we know it. That, you know, if the goal is for us to, and of course, I'm just like, I'm really reaching here, but like, if the goal is for us to peacefully exist again with one another, then maybe that's just the adaptive consequence of having disrupted our environment so much that it looks more like the tundra than it does like a rainforest. You know, that there is something about us getting to the point with civilization that we've undercut ourselves enough that it looks like the glacier rolls in and rolls back out. And then suddenly, you know, we all just have to find our way again together. That's kind of a squishy place to end this, but I don't know. Yeah, I actually, I mean, you reminded me one thing. So in nature, when you see this type of polarization or bistable states, it's often you have two type, A and B, let's say A and B. A helping A to reestablish, B helping B, but A doesn't help B, B doesn't help A. And this feedback will make, wherever you find A, A will become stronger. And wherever you find B, B will become stronger. Over time, you will find the bifurcation. But in Tundra, there's a different type of biology happening. So A can help B, B can help A. In the political analogy, it could be Republican actually caring, Democrat, Democrat actually caring, Republican. In the Tundra, it's so cold and so harsh, any organism can provide shelter for other organism to increase the local temperature. So it doesn't matter if you're shrub, it doesn't matter if you're grass, as long as you have height and you have biomass, you can help your neighbor. Your presence will increase, will ameliorate the harsh environment of your neighbor. And that's type of interaction that doesn't happen in the Fembus forest. It's the opposite. Fembus kill forest, use fire. Forest kill Fembus using shading. And they only help their own. But in the tundra, it may not be by design, just by physics, by the harsh physics of the tundra. Plants will help each other, not intentionally, by forming vegetation clusters that can alleviate the cold. So maybe the expanse has it all wrong and actually we'll get along in space. We should. <laughs> yeah, maybe, we should. <laughs> maybe we should have this. Yeah. Awesome. Ming, this is so cool, man. I love this conversation. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Complexity is produced by the Santa Fe Institute, a nonprofit hub for complex system science located in the high desert of New Mexico. For more information, including transcripts, research links, and educational resources, or to support our science and communication efforts, visit santafe.edu slash podcast.